Welcome. This is Dr. Michio Kaku, Professor of Theoretical Physics at the City College and the Graduate Center of the City University of New York, and this is Exploration. Every week in Exploration, we discuss the fascinating world of science and its impact on society. And today, leading off, we're going to summarize some of the top stories of the past week. The lead story today is, well, here we go again. Just when we thought we could throw away the mask, just when we thought we were at the final stages of the coronavirus, and a new deadly virus has been detected, perhaps even more transmissible than the older Delta virus, which caused so much chaos last year and this year. The new virus is called Omicron, and it's sending panic alerts across the major capitals of the world as they seal off borders, Israel, Italy, Germany, the UK, Czech Republic, Belgium, every hour, every hour, the list grows longer and longer concerning where this new virus has been detected. So the question is, how dangerous is it anyway? What does the science say about this new variation of the coronavirus? Next, we'll also say a few things about cancer. You know, by the time you detect a tumor in your breast or elsewhere, in some sense, in some sense, it's too late. That is, surgery is required almost immediately. Wouldn't it be great? Wouldn't it be great if on a routine visit to the doctor's office, the doctor could tell you, you have cancer. You have 10 years. 10 years to do something about it before a tumor forms. Wouldn't it be great if a simple blood test could detect cancer years before a tumor forms? Well, that time could be happening very soon. It turns out that already several laboratories are applying for FDA approval for a simple blood test that can detect 50, 50 different types of cancer years before a tumor forms, years before it spreads throughout the body. And then we'll say a few things about outer space. The DART missile was launched by NASA. And if you've seen the movies Armageddon and Deep Impact, you may believe that maybe soon we'll blow an asteroid to bits. Well, no, uh, we're not talking about blowing up asteroids, but we are talking about for the first time in history, having a defense mechanism against killer asteroids. Because after all, the dinosaurs, the dinosaurs did not have a space program. They did not have a dart-like missile. They didn't know what hit them 66 million years ago, which ended the reign of the dinosaurs. And then coming soon, hopefully around December 22, mark that down on your calendar, the Webb Space Telescope will hopefully be launched into outer space, replacing the workhorse of astronomy, the Hubble Space Telescope. And so we'll say a few things about what marvelous uh, new instruments the Webb Space Telescope has to offer as it blasts off on December 22nd. Well, let's just jump right into the top stories of the week. The big story is, just when we thought we were turning the corner on the coronavirus, a new deadly version of the virus, perhaps more transmissible 
than the older Delta virus has emerged in South Africa. Already, many of the nations of Europe are sealing off their borders, stating that we have to contain the epidemic before it consumes our population. So how did it happen that almost out of nowhere, just when we thought we were turning the corner, headed toward herd immunity, we have this huge setback? Well, it happened in South Africa. There was a province of South Africa where doctors noticed a strange anomaly. In one area where infection rates should be, well, more or less stable, there was a spike. There was a huge increase in the number of uh, transmitted cases of the virus. So doctors went in, sampled it, and using a simple PCR test, noticed, my God, it's a new version of the coronavirus. Detailed analysis showed how potentially dangerous it is. First of all, this new Omicron virus has 50, 50 new mutations, 30 of which are in the spike protein. And then all the alarm bells went off at that point. Now, what does that mean? First of all, viruses mutate all the time. Every time they reproduce, errors build up. However, it turns out that the larger the test population, obviously, the greater the chances for a mistake to emerge in the reproduction process. So in other words, even though in the West, we have a large number of people being vaccinated against the coronavirus, that still leaves a huge pool of people in the third world countries that are not vaccinated. And just by random accidents, that is where the new varieties of the coronavirus can emerge. So in other words, it's in the interests of the West, it's in the interests of advanced countries which have the vaccine, to spread the wealth because the proving ground for new varieties of the mutation takes place in countries which are not necessarily vaccinated. This sets us back reaching for herd immunity. Look at the past. We've had epidemics like this before. The epidemics of 1350 wiped out a huge portion of the European population. But what happened? Eventually, herd immunity came in Everyone either was killed by the virus or developed an immunity to it. And so the virus had to either disappear or mutate to a milder form. That's called herd immunity. However, if vaccination is uneven, if the West hoards the vaccine and third world nations aren't given access to the vaccine, it leaves a large pool of people that are potential reservoirs for the next variation of the virus. So in other words, it's in the interest of the West, it's in the interest of the advanced nations to share as much of the vaccine as possible so that we have global, global herd immunity, not just citywide or countrywide herd immunity like in the ancient past, but we need global herd immunity, because it's in our own self-interest. It's in the self-interest of the West to share the vaccine as much as possible to prevent reservoirs of unvaccinated people to be proving grounds for the next generation of virus. Well, 
What's causing concern is the 30 mutations in the spike protein. If you've seen the coronavirus, you know it has spikes. These spikes signal danger. These spikes are like a key, a key that inserts into cells in your lungs, opening up the surface of your lung cells, allowing the virus to sneak in and eventually perhaps kill you. So it turns out that because there are 30 new mutations in the spike protein, all the alarm bells went off. Already is conjectured that it's highly contagious, because after all, that's how they detected it to begin with. But second, we think it could be more lethal than the Delta virus because of all the buildup of mutations that have taken place. If this virus really does break out, Eventually, it could displace Delta. Realize that when Delta first emerged, it replaced Alpha, an earlier version of the virus. Today, 99% of all coronavirus cases are, in fact, Delta. That's how contagious Delta was. It simply pushed an earlier version of the coronavirus aside. Some people think that Omicron could push Delta aside, because it is more infectious, they think, than Delta. However, it's not yet known how dangerous it is in terms of the death rate of the virus. So now the question is, what do we do? Well, first of all, don't panic because, well, there's a small chance it could be a false alarm. We have to look at this very carefully. The nations of the world, of course, are being prudent. They're not taking any chances because this is a life and death decision whether or not you close your borders or not. So first of all, don't panic. Second of all, don't throw away your masks. Don't think that you can revert back to the pre-pandemic lifestyle that you once had. What you should do is, if you haven't already, get vaccinated. Now, some people think that, well... Vaccination has side effects. Well, yeah, but they're minor compared to the possible side effects of the coronavirus, which is death. So think about that for a moment. Everything in life has some side effects. Even if you get into a car and take a ride in the countryside, you are, in some sense, taking your life in your own hands as you drive a car. Everything has some side effects. You have to put things into perspective and realize that the side effects of vaccination are rather minor compared to the side effects of the coronavirus, which is death. And, well, you know the drill. Wear a mask. Try to avoid being inside closed room for long periods of time. Avoid long conversations with people in closed rooms. Watch out if people are spitting or speaking too loudly or singing. All these things you should observe It should be part of your lifestyle as we hopefully head toward global herd immunity. Well, as I said, every hour there's a new development in the Omicron, yet another chapter in this long saga. Also, good news. Good news on the cancer front. You know, if you detect a tumor, let's say in your breast, By the time you can detect that tumor, chances are you have maybe on the order of 10 billion cancer cells growing in your body. Surgery is required immediately. No ifs, ands, or buts. 
Once the diagnosis comes out that it's cancerous, you are on the operating table. Wouldn't it be great, however, if every time you get a routine blood test, the blood test tells you that, hey, you have cancer. You have 10 years or so to do something about it. Wouldn't that be great? It means that the word tumor will disappear from the English language. We'll no longer say the word tumor. Cancer will be just like the common cold. Yes, it'll still be around because of the fact that cancer is not one disease, but thousands of different diseases, each one caused by the fact that cells, cancer cells, reproduce forever. Well, wouldn't it be great if there was a liquid biopsy that could detect cancer years before a tumor forms? Well, that time has arrived. It turns out that the FDA has already approved two earlier versions, and later this year or early next year is expected to okay liquid biopsies. Write that down, liquid biopsies. What does it mean? It means a simple blood test that could detect 50, 50 different types of cancer. This is amazing. This could be a game changer. Just realize that cancer is not just one disease, but perhaps thousands of different diseases, each one caused by one factor, and that is the inability of the cancer cell to stop reproducing. So wouldn't it be great if we could treat cancer like the common cold? You know, we live with the common cold. We don't fear it because it doesn't really kill that many people, but we live with the common cold. Same thing may eventually happen with cancer. We may eventually just live with it, tolerate it, because no one really dies of cancer anymore. But the key is early detection. Well, already 134,000 people are being tested. And the Mayo Clinic, the famous Mayo Clinic, will be offering this perhaps at select locations later this year. So remember, this is not 10, 20 years in the future. We're talking about now. So what are the pluses and minuses? On the plus side is, this could be revolutionary, a game changer. Cancer could be more or less a disease of the past. So let's face it, there are drawbacks. What are the drawbacks? First of all, because it is so new, it is not covered by the insurance companies. And it costs over $1,000. I repeat, it costs over $1,000 to do this test, which will pick up 50 different types of cancers growing in your body. Of course, costs will go down with time. Eventually, the FDA will approve it, we hope. And eventually, that means that many people will take it, insurance companies will insure it, and cancer, or large numbers of cancers, could be a thing of the past. So what are the other problems? Well, the problem is it is so accurate that it can even find minor cancers that are relatively harmless and probably will not kill you anytime soon. So in other words, just because it picks up cancer doesn't mean this cancer will go on to kill you. It could be a rather harmless version or a version that will take many, many decades to kill you. In other words, it could literally pick up everything and give you false alarms. But the promise is enormous. Think about it for a moment. Cancer is not just one disease. It's basically a disease of a cell at the genetic level, 
where the cell loses its ability to stop reproducing. It just is immortal. It just keeps on reproducing until it forms a tumor, and that tumor eventually kills you. That's one way in which cancer causes havoc inside the human body. So a simple blood test could catch it before it starts to spread throughout the body and before it'll kill you. So as I said, this could be a game changer. And speaking about game changers, for the first time in history, we're now seriously looking at altering the motion of heavenly bodies in outer space. These heavenly bodies are killer asteroids. You realize that there are thousands, millions of asteroids out there that we have not cataloged, not tracked, and one of them may have our name on it. That's where the DART missile comes in. The DART missile, launched just a few weeks ago by NASA, is the first object whose specific mission is to alter the trajectory of another celestial body in the heavens. There's a double asteroid system out there, and one of them is a very small asteroid that is ideal for this experiment. The DART missile is going to approach this asteroid and collide with it, not blow it up with an atomic bomb. Now, if you've seen the movie Armageddon or Deep Impact, you've been brainwashed, brainwashed by Hollywood into thinking several things that are incorrect. First, that we have a space shuttle that could take Bruce Willis and company out into outer space. And second of all, that blowing it up with an with a, uh, atomic bomb is one of the major possibilities. Well, both are wrong. First of all, that space shuttle you saw in the movies is obsolete. It's been phased out. And more important, we don't have. We don't have shuttles that can go into deep space at that distance from the Earth. Realize that the space shuttle simply spins wheels around the planet Earth. That's all. It's only a few hundred miles off the surface of the Earth, a few hundred miles, while the killer asteroid could be tens of millions of miles in outer space. We have no rocket. We have no rocket that can carry brave astronauts that distance from the Earth. However, we do have rockets, small rockets, that have the ability to nudge, nudge a killer asteroid so that it misses the Earth. In other words, if we have early detection, if we detect one of these asteroids way out there in outer space and then just tweak it, tweak its trajectory just a little bit by a direct impact, that may be enough so that it whizzes by the Earth and misses the Earth. Well, of course, it's a big gamble. It's a $10 billion gamble. But we hope that next year, September next year, we hope that this experiment could be a success. So we're talking about a kinetic energy weapon capable of bumping into this smaller asteroid, deflecting it a bit, so that it will change its trajectory and, in principle, on a future date, save the Earth from a disastrous impact. Just realize that these NEOs are more plentiful than you realize. NEO stands for Near Earth Objects. Thousands of them that are larger than a football field tracked by NASA. Now, then you may ask yourself a simple question. 
What about objects smaller than a football field? They could cause a tremendous amount of damage. One of those objects the size of a football field could take out London or Washington, D.C. Do we track them? The answer is no. We don't have the money, the resources, and the equipment necessary to track everything down to the size of, let's say, a pencil. We can just barely track objects the size of a football field. And yes, there are objects out there that are dangerously in a position to come whizzing by the Earth. There is the asteroid Apophis. In the coming decades, the asteroid Apophis, being a thousand feet across, will actually fly underneath our satellites. That's how close it's going to skim the Earth. It'll be seen by binoculars. Think about that. A killer asteroid that you can see coming at you with binoculars. So far, the latest computer programs show that Apophis will make two passes. Two passes around the Earth in the coming decades, but on both passes will just barely miss actually hitting the planet Earth. So it's something to think about. And realize that Russia... Russia was hit with two asteroids, each of which were about the size of an apartment building, capable of taking out a city. So think about it. city busters. City busters hit the Earth on the scale of once every few centuries, two of which hit Russia in the last century. So think about it for a moment, that one of these things hitting London, San Francisco, Los Angeles can completely devastate the whole metropolitan area. Then we have nation busters, objects bigger than Apophis, which could hit Germany, the United Kingdom, and take out an entire country. However, to be on the safe side, they would hit the earth once perhaps every few thousand years. So we don't have to worry about them anytime soon. We have plenty of time to prepare. Then we have planet busters. Planet busters a few miles across, they would hit the Earth on a scale of once every 50 million years. The last one hit the Yucatan of Mexico 66 million years ago, wiping out the dinosaurs. So it's something to think about. These dangers are not hypothetical. These dangers happen. These dangers do take place, and we have records of this, by looking at the surface of the Earth. The surface of the Earth is peppered, peppered with the craters caused by these ancient impacts, but perhaps some of the biggest impacts are not seen at all because of continental drift. Because of continental drift, the surface of the Earth is recycled. That's right. The surface of the Earth is actually being recycled by continental drift, meaning that some of the earliest craters have since vanished. And we have no longer any record of these very ancient collisions going back to the creation of the Earth itself. However, the craters that we do see around, they are huge. I mean, think of the crater in the Yucatan of Mexico. It is about approximately 200 miles in diameter, caused by an object perhaps six miles across that plowed into the Yucatan of Mexico 66 million years ago. It was a horrendous sight. What happened was, of course, first you had the flash, the flash of light from the impact speeding at the speed of light, instantly uh, visible 
in a huge portion of the planet Earth. Heat waves, heat waves coming off of infrared radiation, burning everything in sight. Then you have the shock wave. The shock wave emerging, let's say, on the order of the speed of sound, capable of, of knocking down entire forests. Then you have the rain of micrometeorites, thousands of them lighting up the sky. Micrometeorites that rain down, creating forest fires, forest fires throughout the entire area. And then, perhaps a few hours after that, the tidal wave, the tsunami. Because the asteroid hit the Gulf of Mexico, it meant that there was a tidal wave, perhaps maybe, who knows, half a mile high, that was able to basically flood that entire area. You realize that if you go through the American Midwest, you can actually pick up debris, pick up debris from that impact site if you dig deep enough and see a record, a record of what happened thousands of miles away in the Yucatan of Mexico. Well, we hope that this doesn't take place. However, we should point out that the DART mission was only against asteroids. Asteroids are predictable. They go in stable orbits around the sun. However, comets, comets can be unpredictable. These are called long period comets. They come from way outside the solar system and they make maybe one pass, just one pass throughout the solar system, meaning that we have no clue at all of its future trajectories and how often they're going to occur and realize that in a worst-case scenario, and again, this is a worst-case scenario, so don't lose any sleep over it. In a worst-case scenario, a long-period comet whose trajectory is unknown can whip around the backside of the sun so that we can't see it because of the sun glare, come out from behind the sun, and then we detect it. And how much warning do we get? Oh, a few weeks. Just a few weeks' warning that a killer comet is coming in our direction. And speaking about outer space, the Webb Space Telescope is now being primed to be launched into outer space. After a number of very embarrassing delays, finally, on December 22, watch for it, the Webb Space Telescope, cross your fingers, will be launched into outer space, the successor to the Hubble Space Telescope. Its mirror is three times bigger than the Hubble's mirror, meaning that it has nine times, nine times the resolution of the Hubble Space Telescope. And it could actually see through dust clouds and things that are obscured by, by the Hubble Space Telescope. You see, the web is an infrared telescope. It detects heat radiation, heat radiation that can penetrate clouds, Heat radiation that may be so accurately measured that we might actually have photographs. Think about this. Photographs of planets going around other stars in outer space. That would be amazing. Having pictures, pictures now, of extrasolar planets, of which so far we've cataloged 4,000 orbiting nearby stars, and the Webb Telescope will give us yet another window into the perhaps billions of extrasolar planets orbiting stars in our own backyard, the Milky Way galaxy.
Well, I'm afraid that's it for the first part of exploration. In the second half of exploration, we're going to continue our discussion of what the Webb Space Telescope will analyze, and that is the mystery of black holes. How is it possible that a black hole can have a mass so great that even light itself cannot escape? It's a one-way trip through a black hole. So stay tuned now for the second half of exploration as we bring on Professor Fulvia Melia, one of the world's leading authorities on black hole physics. Welcome back to Exploration with Dr. Michio Kaku. In the second half of Exploration, we're going to talk about perhaps the most mysterious object in the universe, which we hope to probe with the Webb Space Telescope to be launched into outer space on December 22nd, 2021. So this could make history as in the same way that the Hubble Space Telescope also opened the heavens to studying the Big Bang, studying black holes, studying the birth and death of stars and galaxies. And so, again, with us today is Dr. Fulvia Melia, University of Arizona, and an authority on black holes. And as we mentioned, the Hubble Space Telescope gives us only optical and ultraviolet frequencies. While on the other hand, the Webb Space Telescope has nine times the resolving power of the Hubble Space Telescope and will also probe the infrared range, which the Hubble Space Telescope could not. And before we begin, let me just make a short announcement. If you want to know more about exploration and what I do, go to my website. My website is mkaku.org mkaku.org and go to Facebook. We have 5 million fans on Facebook and I've written five New York Times bestsellers. The latest New York Times bestseller is called The God Equation, The Quest for a Theory of Everything. And that's, well, that's what I do for a living. That's why I get paid for paid by the city of New York to work on things like the theory of everything, an equation perhaps no more than one inch long that will allow us to, quote, read the mind of God. And these are the words of Albert Einstein. Well, again, with us today is Fulvia Melia. We're going to be talking about black holes, which we hope to explore with the Webb Space Telescope. And Dr. Fulvia Melia is an authority on black holes. The first question for you is, how did you first get interested in physics and astronomy? Well, I actually grew up in Melbourne, and uh, I, I don't know if all of your listeners have had the opportunity of visiting the Southern Hemisphere, but looking up at the sky from the Southern Hemisphere, one gets a, uh, quite a different view than, than from the Northern Hemisphere. The Milky Way, for example, is very easily seen, and it stretches from one horizon 
to the next, then it, it fills the cosmic vault. And when I was small, I remember almost every evening just going outdoors and, and just looking at the stars and the Milky Way for hours and hours and hours. And I would say that that's probably what started me off. Uh, with that, of course, comes the natural curiosity of how things work and what these objects are. And one is led, I think, in most cases, to uh, a study of physics. And, and that's what got me into physics and astronomy, I would say. And Arizona is one of the world's leading centers for astronomical research, I understand. So what is it like to be in Arizona versus being in New York City to be able to look up at the night sky and see the Milky Way and also to be at the very forefront of telescope technology? Well, that's the interesting comparison, of course, because even though um, I, I usually tell my friends, especially the ones overseas, even though we belong to the same country, the southwest of the United States, is really very, very different from the Northeast, as I think everybody uh, realizes. Here in Arizona, the skies are almost always clear. Um, it's not a coincidence that many of the national and now the international telescope facilities are being built here. Uh, we get very little cloud cover during the year, so going out in the evenings, whether using a telescope or not, uh, it presents quite a glorious experience. It's, it's a wonderful opportunity. Um, to feel the uh, the magnitude um, of the skies and, and the objects uh, there. And, of course, for research, especially for the observers and people who build instruments eventually placed on the telescopes with which these observations are made, there's, there's very, there are very few places on the planet better than this to do um, studies such as this. The clarity of the skies and also the... Uh, access to objects not only in the northern hemisphere but those approaching um, what one would see from the southern hemisphere. Of course, Earth's rim prevents us from seeing all of the portion of the Milky Way that would be accessible from the south, but nonetheless, during um, a portion of the year, we can still see the center of the galaxy, for example, which is close to the southern horizon for us here in Arizona. But uh, other than the skies here, um, the only other place that would present a comparable opportunity for studying um, these objects would be from countries such as Chile, um, which, of course, is way down south. Um, so as far as we here in the United States are concerned, unless we want to travel to South America, this is probably the place to do this type of work. And also, tell us a little bit about how stars die and uh, the formation of black holes. Right. Well, this, of course, is um, uh, an ongoing investigation. We think we understand some pieces of the puzzle. Not everything is known. It, it's quite a long story. Uh, uh, black holes can actually form in several ways, and it's not clear that the supermassive objects that we see in the nuclei of galaxies form uh, through the stellar process of, of life and then uh, death. Uh, they may have formed in other ways, and we may come back to this in a few moments when we talk about the uh, the genesis of these objects early on after the Big Bang. But in terms of the smaller black holes, like the ones uh, like Cygnus X1, for example, these ob the objects that we think weigh perhaps uh, 10 to 20 times as much as the Sun, as far as these objects are concerned, most of them um, are produced uh, when a very massive star 
Um, by very massive, we mean something, uh, an object that weighs anywhere between 30 to 50 times the mass of the sun, uh, burns its nuclear fuel rather quickly, it turns out, because the more massive the object is, the faster uh, it burns the fuel, um, and then eventually loses that internal support that prevents it from collapsing to the middle. It's the heat generated from nuclear burning that uh, preserves the star during its the main part of its life, like the sun is now. And at the end, when that nuclear fuel is, is burned to heavier elements, such as carbon and eventually to iron, um, the heat generation stops and the material can't support itself anymore and collapses into the middle, at which point um, a supernova explosion ensues and the remnant, depending on how massive the original star was, can sometimes be a black hole with a mass somewhere between a couple of uh, solar masses and 10 to 20, as I said earlier. So the vast majority of black holes about which we know, um, and there are some billion of these in the galaxy, probably formed in this way. But there is another class of objects, like the one at the center of our galaxy and the center of many other galaxies, such as the Andromeda galaxy, our sister galaxy. These objects um, have a mass anywhere between a million to several billion times the mass of the sun. And although some of them may have started as seeds from supernova explosions uh, a long, long time ago and eventually have grown to the point where they are now, it's not clear that all of them could have formed that way. And the reason I say that, and this would lead into a, another part of the story, um, the reason I say that is that we now have very, very strong evidence that at least some of these supermassive objects were formed only 700 million years after the Big Bang, much, much earlier than the formation of galaxies and much of the structure that we see in the universe today. So it's starting to look like there was some other mechanism, some other process that led to this early collapse and this, this catastrophic creation of, of uh, very strong gravity surrounding these, um, these objects, um, which probably also then acted as uh, nucleation sites that attracted other matter towards them. And that matter, uh, we think, in, in many cases, may have led to the formation of galaxies. So the odd thing now is that uh, we may actually owe our existence to the formation of these supermassive black holes because they may have been um, the seeds that created galaxies, which then, of course, created stars within them and planets and life and so on. So it's quite a long, complex story, and, and we don't know all the, uh, the details yet, but some of the pieces of the puzzle are starting to emerge in that there, there definitely appear to be several classes of these, and one class having to do with the supermassive objects uh, somehow had a genesis much, much earlier than we thought before, and how they formed is not entirely clear yet. Well, I have a question that many young people ask about black holes. Uh, first of all, black holes suck in everything. Even light itself cannot escape. In some sense, they're the ultimate Roach Hotel, and the Hubble Space Telescope has photographed the black holes eating up whole star systems. So in other words, things check into a black hole, but nothing ever checks out. Well, then the question is, well, a black hole should be invisible. Even light itself cannot escape from a black hole. 
Therefore, a black hole should be invisible. And yet we have the Hubble Space Telescope taking photographs of perhaps hundreds of black holes in outer space. And so then the question is, how do you photograph something that is invisible? Right. This is, um, th this is what's really generating much of the excitement these days with um, uh, theoretical astrophysicists and, of course, the physics community in general. Um, what telescopes that have been built up, up to this point have seen so far is not really the black hole itself, but what they see is light produced by matter falling into the black hole. Um, their resolution is not yet um, good enough for them to make an image of the black hole itself, the event horizon, which is the surface uh, beyond which nothing can escape, including light. So if we really could see the black hole itself, what we would see is a, is a dark shadow um, in front of a curtain of light. The curtain of light presumably would be produced by matter behind the black hole relative to us, and uh, the black hole would absorb all of the light produced behind it um, or redirect it away from our line of sight because gravity can can uh, bend the path of light. And so we would see a dark shadow. That's what a black hole would look like if we had a camera uh, with such clarity, such spatial resolution that we could see detail down to that size. It does look like by the, the end of the decade we may have the capability of actually forming such an image. But for now, um, telescopes such as Hubble and Chandra have not been able to do that yet. So instead, what they show us is images, uh, or what they produce is images of matter falling into the black hole from uh, larger distances, distances much further away than the event horizon itself. Um, both have, have done spectacularly in this regard, though. Uh, both Chandra, uh, the X-ray telescope, and, uh, and Hubble have uh, each produced a very deep image of certain patches of the sky. Um, uh, by deep, we mean that uh, there were patches in the sky, such as one in the constellation of Ursa Major, where there are very, very few objects um, within our own galaxy inside of that patch. And so it's like looking through um, uh, it's like looking through a relatively open window to much, much distances much further away than uh, objects within our galaxy. And what they were able to do by staring at these patches was to collect light from objects um, some 10 to 12 billion light years away. In other words, objects that uh, were producing this light um, only seven to eight, nine hundred million years after the Big Bang. And what they see when they look at these patches is... Um, very bright objects, either X-ray objects or uh, ultraviolet or uh, infrared objects in the case of Hubble, um, uh, objects that number as many as 500 within a region only the size of the full moon. So if you can imagine with your eye looking at a part of the sky uh, that has the size of the full moon, within such a region, these telescopes have, have been able to produce images of as many as 500 of these objects. And these objects are so far away, they're so bright, that the only way that they could produce this much light uh, is if they're black holes absorbing matter from their environment and converting gravitational and rest mass energy into, into light. So we believe that when we look at these patches, most of the objects that we see, most of the 500, 
um, must be supermassive black holes um, at that uh, distance in, in the universe. And what's interesting is that when one extrapolates over the whole sky, these numbers correspond to total numbers of some three to 400 million such objects. And uh, we know that that's not all that's there because that's what we can count. That's what we can see. But some of these objects are probably also obscured by uh, dusty matter falling in towards them. And so it's not clear that we're seeing everything. So the best that we can say is that there must be at least 300 million of these supermassive black holes um, spread throughout the cosmos. Chandra, of course, has gone on and done even much better than that. Uh, it's allowed us to look at the supermassive black hole at the center of our own galaxy with even better clarity because it's much closer than the others. Um, it's only 25,000 light years away compared to the 12 billion light years of many of these other objects near uh, the beginning of, of the universe's life. And um, because this object at the center of our galaxy is so close, we've been able to study it with Chandra and, and now other instruments as well. The European Space Agency has its own X-ray telescope called XMM-Newton, which has done uh, similarly spectacular studies of these objects. Uh, but with Chandra, we've been able to, to see um, the X-rays produced by the black hole at the center of our galaxy with enough resolution that we can actually place the, the source, the location of the emitting plasma, within a region no bigger than the distance between the Earth and the Sun. Um, in addition, this object seems to explode roughly once a day, uh, producing a flare of X-rays. Um, the X-ray intensity during these events goes up by anywhere between 30 and 200 times what the intensity is um, during the quiescent state. And so for a couple of hours, the black hole at the center of our galaxy shines much, much brighter than it otherwise does. And what's intriguing now, and these are the latest results that haven't even been published in the literature, what's intriguing now is that there is very clear evidence that during these events, we can see uh, a periodic pulse it's like the heartbeat of this object. There's a periodic pulse that occurs r roughly once every 20 minutes. Um, the natural interpretation for this, and, and again, it hasn't been published yet, so we have to look at this more carefully and make sure that we've ruled out all the other possibilities, but the natural interpretation is that what we're looking at is a phenomenon um, associated with uh, X-rays being produced in a region orbiting the black hole uh, within a distance only three to four times the size of the event horizon. So although we can't see uh, the event horizon just yet with Chandra or Hubble, um, nonetheless, we're seeing a phenomenon associated with emission that's occurring only two to three times the size of the event horizon. Um, it's similar to what would happen if uh, you imagine putting a searchlight on a planet and being in its uh, focal uh, cone only when the searchlight is pointing towards you. And so you would see a pulse every time the planet goes around the sun, which would then lead to a, a periodicity or a period of one year in the case of the Earth, because that's how long it takes the Earth to go around the sun. So it's a similar phenomenon with the black hole at the galactic center. We see this pulsation roughly every 20 minutes. Um, and, and so we interpret that as, as being a, a 
part of the plasma in orbit around the black hole, and the distance that corresponds to that period is, is about three times the size of the event horizon. So th these are some of the most exciting things that are happening now as we speak, and uh, the prospects will get only better as time passes and uh, Chandra and XMM continue to look and, and discover additional uh, activity and, and also with the next generation of telescopes in the pipeline now. Now, everyone asks the question, what happens if you fall into a black hole? No one's ever done that, of course. But could you explain some of the distortions, the distortions of space-time that occur if you were to fall into a black hole and someone were to observe you falling into a black hole from a distant planet? Right. And, and the, the answer to that, of course, depends, not surprisingly, on how massive the black hole is. The, the, what one would see falling through the event horizon um, differs depending on how massive the black hole is compared to the, the mass of the object or the body falling in. Um, it turns out that for a massive object like the one at the galactic center, which we now understand uh, has uh, roughly 3 million solar masses worth of material contained within it, falling through the event horizon of an object like that, um, a person would actually not see very much, <laughs> would, would actually not feel uh, very strong effects on on his or her body. There would there would be other distortions to the light, but but that has we'll come back to that in a moment. Uh, the point is that um, what happens physically to matter falling through the event horizon depends on how big the object falling in is compared to how big the event horizon is, and the size of the event horizon scales with the mass of the black hole. So, for example, um, if the sun were to shrink down to the size of a black hole, its event horizon would have a radius of only three kilometers, smaller than, than a city. Uh, whereas the black hole at the galactic center um, has uh, an event horizon with a radius about one-twentieth the distance between the Earth and the Sun, which is much, much bigger, of course, than, than uh, three kilometers. And it's the, it's the difference or the comparison between the size of the event horizon and the size of the object falling in that determines how much physical damage, if we can put it that way, is done to the object falling in. So because our, human, our body is so small compared to uh, the size of the event horizon of the black hole of the galactic center, we could fall right through and not feel uh, very much... Uh, uh, physical damage. We wouldn't get distorted or pulled or stretched or, or compressed. We would be able to pass through the event horizon and then other catastrophic uh, events would, would ensue, I'm sure, after that. But, but the process of falling in wouldn't do damage to us. On the other hand, if we were to fall through a smaller black hole, like the sun again, if the sun were to be compressed to uh, three kilometer size, then our body would get stretched at first, uh, pulled apart, and, and and uh, catastrophic damage would follow. We would be disintegrated, and, and only the atoms and molecules would uh, would uh, fall through. So the the physical damage is different depending on the size. And a good analogy would be um, compare standing on on the surface of the Earth, where the surface of the Earth, even though it's spherical, looks flat to us because it's so much bigger than us, and uh, and then standing on the dome of a cathedral. The dome also is is quasi-spherical at the top, but because the size of the sphere is much smaller compared to the Earth and much closer to our size, we feel the curvature 
um, <clears throat> of the dome much, much uh, more. And so that's the analogy. A small black hole, because of its greater curvature relative to us, would do more damage to our body falling through than, than a big black hole does. Now, that's as far as physical damage is concerned. But what we see, though, um, uh, would, uh, uh, would be less dependent on the size, and there would be significant distortion to the light path progressively as we get closer and closer to the event horizon. So um, light, because of gravitational redshift, meaning that um, photons uh, have progressively less and less energy, not speed, the speed of light is always the same, but the energy of the photons decreases relative to us at infinity as they get closer and closer uh, to the event horizon. Because of that decreasing energy, we have uh, greater and greater difficulty seeing the light. Eventually, as the, <clears throat> as the light reaches the event horizon, it's lost all of its energy relative to, to what we see. And so uh, we wouldn't be able to even detect the light anymore, even though it would still be coming uh, out uh, until it passes through the event horizon. And beyond that, we wouldn't see it anymore. But as we fall in, because of this effect, we would tend to see primarily light concentrated um, closer and closer to the zenith angle, right above our head. So as we get closer to the event horizon, we see a progressively smaller cone of light from the rest of the universe until that point when we cross the event horizon itself, and only the light coming directly down would be, uh, would be visible to us. And so uh, we, we would see these significant distortions because of the light bending and the gravitational redshift. And when we cross the event horizon, then, of course, nothing can go back out, so we can't communicate with the outside world. But what we would see is only light falling directly inwards towards us. Now, Stephen Hawking uh, made headlines uh, a few months ago um, concerning the information problem. That is, if you take the Encyclopedia Britannica and you were to throw it uh, into a black hole, all that information, said Stephen Hawking, would be permanently lost because it can't be retrieved. Um, however, he, he took back that position a few months ago. Uh, could you explain to us exactly what is this information problem that Stephen Hawking was addressing that made the front pages of so many newspapers? Right. This is a very important problem, of course, because it, it's right on the interface between quantum mechanics and general relativity. And as, as you know yourself very well, Michio, there's, there's this significant uh, conflict between what quantum mechanics says and requires and what classical general relativity says and requires. They're, they're almost the two opposite ends when it comes to this question of um, uh, information loss and, and, and how one uh, treats the force and, and so on. So in quantum mechanics, information cannot be lost. But in, in general relativity, which is a classical theory, and these issues hadn't come up, uh, at the time when general relativity was being developed, uh, when an object falls through the event horizon, as we were saying before, um, all the information that it carries with it, the number of protons, the number of electrons, any geometric configuration, past history, whatever it has, is never accessible again to the outside world, to the universe outside of the, uh, of the black hole. And so that's the paradox, or the conflict, I should say. It's not really a paradox, but that's the conflict.
And that conflict that Fulvia Melia talked about was the conflict between general relativity and the quantum theory. And that's precisely what I do for a living, trying to resolve the paradoxes of the quantum theory, the theory of atoms, and general relativity, the theory of the universe. To have a unified theory that unites the theory of the very big and cosmic with the theory of microscopic entities like particles and atoms. Well, once again, our special guest today has been Dr. Fulvia Melia, uh, Professor of Astronomy at the University of Arizona, and you're listening to Exploration with Dr. Michio Kaku. And if you want to find out more about exploration, go to my website, mkaku.org, m-k-a-k-u.org, and go to Facebook. On Facebook, I have 5 million fans on Facebook, and I've written five New York Times bestsellers. The latest New York Times bestseller is called The God Equation, The Quest for a Theory of Everything. So once again, for exploration, this is Dr. Michio Kaku. Good day.